Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Riding Unicorns. This week, we have James Hind, who is the founder of CarWow, on the show, and we can't wait to hear his story. Hi, James. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. Perhaps a good place to start would be just your journey um, up until now. Yeah, for sure. So I set up CarWow, what, now, 11, 12 years ago? So I've been at it a while, straight after uni. So I did finance at uni. Didn't learn a lot, went into a fund management firm as an intern, and that put me off finance for life, like literally three months. And I thought, this is not for me. So I didn't know what else I wanted to do and thought we'll potentially start a business. And the advice was always I got read was do something in a field you're interested in. So I persuaded my wife, who's not into cars, to join me to do something in cars. So she designed a website and we started getting together a whole lot of content out there on the web onto one place. Ran it from my parents' house for a good kind of, what, two, three years. And then finally managed to start getting some revenue once we actually helped consumers to buy their car. And we could actually start to create some revenue for the first time. What was the help that you were providing to consumers that you could earn money for? Basically, it was around, if you ever use Rotten Tomatoes for films where it summarizes what all the critics are saying about a film. And you can see within about a minute, is it worth spending two hours of my life watching this film? We thought we'll do the same for cars, find out what everyone's saying about reviews of the latest, whatever, Ford, Mercedes, et cetera. So you can at a glance see, is this car any good and what's it good for? Super interesting. I'm a big petrol head myself. So I'm interested, did it satisfy your interest in cars or was it, did it end up not being kind of looking around cars and reading about them? I mean, I can get very passionate about a lot of things it happens to be in an area that i had a passion for but honestly i, I could have got as passionate about the business if we were selling washing machines or something I, I think it's the same with every founder they become super absorbed whatever the problem they're trying to solve is so the partners at episode one i think they were your first backers so what was the journey to meeting them and then what was the process raising your your first round and, yeah. and what was the purpose of that? So yeah, they, they led our first ever round. So we had no money basically to start with for the first few years. And we managed, we tried to raise a round. We literally spoke to every VC in London, every angel that I could try and contact, we reached out to uh, and, and struggled. And then I saw Simon Murdoch speaking at an event about angels and I sent him an email straight after and said, we've got this business. We pitched him uh, and, and luckily he then got a load of other angels together. We had, we had a couple we'd sourced already uh, and did our first of around 250. And I think fr- from that, we used it to, I think my co-founder, uh, David, who's our CTO, wasn't full-time, so he could go full-time. And then we could start to pump some money into uh, AdWords to drive a bit of traffic. But yeah, very, very thankful to those guys for spotting an opportunity. We were, we were a diamond in the rough, I think Simon says. <laughs> I think he does say that. I, um, we've got Simon on the show another time, so maybe we can hear his perspective on it. But from your perspective, what do you think he liked about you and, and it? Well, honestly, I think he could see through what would have been a crap presentation from basically a load of people who've done nothing before. I've got no track record, but I think he could see something. And it, honestly, because he could see something where literally hundreds of people have said no before. And so quite what it was, I don't know, but he spotted it and, and gave us that leg up to start with. So James, I was just going to ask about when you felt you became a tech company and how you met your CTO, because I think a lot of founders struggle with kind of finding a CTO, a CTO co-founder. Yeah, that's a good question. So we found David, our CTO, ultimately by cold calling and cold emailing loads of CTOs of established tech startups. 
And I found one guy who was who kindly uh, took my email, Aiden, who was the CTO of Wiggle, the big e-commerce shop. And he said, look, there's this Italian guy we know. He'll be way too expensive. You won't be able to afford him. But he might know someone. Um, so I contacted that Italian person, and that Italian person was David, my co-founder. Uh, he was the only person we ever, I don't think, we, you can't even call it an interview. He's the only person we spoke to. And, and we, we, I think, literally that day when we met each other, agreed to work together. So... Basically, it was a bit of hustling to try and build up, find people who had a network into these potential future CTOs. Uh, and then we got lucky. It sounds, the way you've portrayed it sounds super scrappy. And I'm sure it, I'm sure parts of it were, I'm sure parts of it were. How focused were you at the time, say, of raising that initial angel money? How focused were you on building a, a, a huge business? We were taking it one, one step at a time. <laughs> I mean, our focus was literally get David full-time so we could build faster and get some money to actually put into marketing. That was our pure focus. And I think, again, another thing that episode one did very, very well is then help us work out what we should do post that first fundraise. So I think they're very, very helpful at that. Look, you just got a load of money for the first time in your life into the business. Let's help put together a plan so that you can raise another round after that. I realize actually for our listeners, we haven't yet explained um, exactly what Carwell does. And I think many of our listeners would have already heard of it. Perhaps, James, in your, your own words, you could just explain what you do. Sure. So ultimately, Carwell is there to help you buy or sell your current car. So buying a car is a big financial decision, quite a painful one, lots of choice. We want to give you all the options, all the ways you can buy it, fund it, help you work out what car to buy, and help you sell your current car as well for a great price. So hand-holding you throughout the whole thing. And we're a marketplace model. So we don't own cars, we don't move cars around, we don't touch them. Uh, pure marketplace representing all the different myriad of ways that you've got to buy or sell a car. And James, I've noticed that in your last funding round, I think you topped up with a bit of crowdfunding. What was that experience like and what was the thought process from a company that was getting access to capital using crowdfunding to leverage some of the other benefits? We, we loved it. We were really keen on it. So we had a really good investor. I think that was Daimler, so Mercedes in that round. And we thought we want a bit more cash. And we thought, frankly, rather than give it, rather than give a bit more of the business to yet another VC, let's get a whole load of consumers and actually quite a lot of people in the current street in instead. So I think we've got, I can't remember, 7,000 different consumers. And it's great because they're going to buy the next car through car. They're going to tell their friends. Uh, they're a little marketing channel for us. We give them access to beta stuff versus yet another VC being on the cap table. Super interesting. I think um, Crowdcube is when seeders are becoming more accepted sort of ways for actually often later stage companies to top up VC led rounds. And for the, for the reasons that you've outlined, have you been able to measure any impact from positive impact on the business from that crowdfunding? If we wanted to, we could work it out. But again, I think it's just you, you get a lot of benefits from it. So we basically copied the likes of Monzo and Revolut, who were doing some big rounds and then topping up with a bit of Crowdcube. I don't think it would work for most companies just doing Crowdcube on its on its own from scratch. I think it helps massively if you've got a lead investor, particularly if it's a, a relatively recognized name. It's far easier. Well, I was just going to mention that if anyone is interested in knowing more about crowdfunding, we interviewed both Cedars and Crowdcube in season one. So go back and have a look. And and then I was going to ask about kind of hiring and you you guys have grown to quite a number of employees now. So how many is that? And What's been your biggest lesson along the way? If you can tell us any stories yeah. about some of the experiences, maybe you could shed some of the... Shed some. Yeah, we got very lucky with our early hires. 
Um, our, our first employee, not a founder, was also the only person we spoke to and hired him. Very helpful. So we're about 250 people now. A lot of people in Munich and Madrid, lots of people remote as well. I think we, the best things we've done and the worst things we've done are hiring people. We've had some amazing hires who've transformed the business and, and really, really just led that area fantastically and made life super easy. And then unfortunately on the way, we've had quite a lot of people who just weren't right for us. And it set us back in different departments, different years, but significantly uh, a couple of times, actually more than a couple of few times easily. And I think what we learned slowly, but have learned and haven't made the same mistake in the last 18 months is you, you've got to hire for values and, and ways of working. So I made the mistake of hiring some people who come from some sexy companies, that impressive companies, but just because they were good at that company doesn't mean they're going to work in how we work. Uh, and, and it just kind of alien in terms of culture and, and, and approaches to working. We were pretty ruthless at moving them on fairly quickly if it, didn't work, if it wasn't working out, but had massive impacts towards the business. And we'd have been a lot, lot bigger now, faster, if, if we hadn't hired some people. What, what does cultural fit mean at Car Wow? Do you, do you think, I mean, presumably you're overweight car enthusiasts? Uh, no, 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 no. Really? We've got some car enthusiasts, but we like the naivety that people who don't know cars bring because that represents the, the typical consumer. But I, I think you, you, it's a good question of what is culture. I mean, to us, it's it's, it's ways of working. And, and yes, we have all the kind of values on the wall like everyone does, but we, you, you, we've got to stick to how we work. It's, it's a certain style and, and it wouldn't work for, for others. And, and lots of people who are very successful at Carwell probably wouldn't be necessarily successful in other companies because, again, they've got very different ways of working. Uh, but being ruthless on the interview process for, for finding that fit. Super interesting. And I think it's always quite a difficult question, but is there one moment or a few moments that stand out to you as being the best moments in, in the car wow journey for you so far? Well, I think fundraising was always a good moment because it's ultimately reinforcing that someone's got big belief in the company and what you're doing. And it's a chance to kind of celebrate as well. Because obviously startups are fairly relentless, constant wanting to do more, 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 more. And those fundraising, when they happen, are a good kind of moment to stop and think, gosh, we got this far. And here comes another big phase of growth behind it. And, and for, for you guys, have the sort of big rounds that you've done, I'm not sure what your biggest round is. I think it's, what, 30 million pounds, biggest round? Okay. So 30 million pound round. What does that mean for you guys? Is it more money to, to throw into the marketing machine or is it, more money to execute on new product and execute on the vision. Yeah, so historically, the early rounds are definitely largely more money thrown into marketing. More recently, it's more around development of products, which is also, I think, overall a better way to grow. It's all about the consumer proposition. Uh, if you've got that, then it's fantastic. I think in the early days, we were throwing too much money into marketing and getting too hooked on that Google crack cocaine. Uh, so we, we weaned ourselves off that nicely over the last couple of years. But a lot of people do the same thing. That's a pretty positive move because I think there was some stat in 2020 that came out that 65% of venture dollars were spent with Google or Facebook. It, it rocked a few of few VCs' worlds once they heard that. There's quite a lot of noise at the moment in the car buying space. Yeah. Um, notable brands how do you see it playing out and is that a kind of a net positive for the sector that everything's coming online and you guys have raised lots of money but how do you compete with someone that's raised more money yeah, yeah. so yeah, i think uh, auto tech was not sexy until about two years ago and, and a lot's happened since 
I mean, ultimately, we love it. The more choice, the more options that a consumer has, the more need there is for a marketplace that has all the options. And these kind of new breeds of car dealers and various tech firms raising money, doing various things, are a big kind of kick up the ass for the traditional car industry. This is one of the last industries to go online. And, and COVID and all these new breeds uh, are really shifting their gear into taking digital properly, which is ultimately a, a massive net gain for us. And we, we like as well the focus they generally got on consumers, because again, the traditional car industry have to mirror that focus. So everyone wins. Yeah. And your model, although very consumer friendly, is it slightly more attractive to the incumbents than maybe some of the other platforms that are going kind of... No, no, no. So we'll work with... So we have car dealers selling through us, leasing companies, car manufacturers, some of the online car dealers. So we'll let anyone promote what they're selling ultimately, as long as we think there's a good customer experience at the end of it. So again, more choice, the better for us. Yeah. Some exciting news last week, I think, was your... of Wizzle, which which I just think is is awesome and makes so much sense and gives you a true full stack offering. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what it means for you guys? Yeah, sure. So we acquired a company called Wizzle, uh, and basically we've got a fantastic way to sell your car. So what you do, you've got a car to sell, you take some photos, you put your registration and your mileage, and then you list it on the site and you'll get dealers bidding to buy it directly. So you get a range of offers and ultimately then you get a great price for it. So we, we believe for almost all consumers a better price than you would using something like WeBunny Car or, or Part Exchanging. And then the dealer that you choose will collect from your house. So really, really convenient as well. It's a, it's a great little team. It's only about 11 people, but selling about 14,000 cars a year. Uh, and we've got absolutely shed loads of traffic uh, and consumers that we can then pump into it. We'll ease out the Whistle brand and make it pure car wow, uh, and then start up a whole load of marketing just on that proposition as well, because it, it is literally the best way to sell a car. The whole premise, the whole model is great. Great for consumers, but as importantly, great for dealers to access this, these cars directly as well. Yeah, and why buy versus build? Speed, basically. This team has built out a good tech platform, big network of dealers, and they've got deep, 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 deep knowledge. I'm sure over time we could have got that, but build it, it would take a good 18 months, two years, buy it, and we can start accelerating it far, far faster. A decision like that to go and buy another company, how is that taken? Who's involved? Do you lean on some external support in the process as well? Or can you rely on your own sort of finance background and some of the VCs? Yeah, sure. So this is a good example where we'd kept in touch with this company for a couple of years. So we had a bit of a relationship. We'd seen them grow. And then my COO, who, who only joined us recently, I had another meeting with them and thought there's something here and, and encouraged us to consider acquiring them. We had a look at it, did a bit of kind of light. It's a bit like a VC. You do a bit of lightweight DD and then you issue a term sheet with an, an agree a kind of price. Then you go into a more kind of deep DD. So we got some legal experts and finance guys to, to, to pour all over it. Uh, and similar to similar to the time between a term sheet and close about six weeks and then again a bit like a vc to get that initial offer we went to the board a bit like going to an investment committee and said this is what we want to do this is the price we want to pay do you agree and and ultimately they backed it and said yeah so all, all in all not hugely complicated i think in a way almost the complicated bit comes now well we've got to integrate the team the good good team there the tech the dealers uh, that's that's almost the, probably the hard bit now yeah, awesome. And when you submit an offer, do 
do you, did you call up the founder or is it literally just like send an email over we want to buy your company here's what we're offering again a bit, a bit like our experience with a term sheet where you, you call call them to talk it through convey the excitement and then send it straight out to the writing so they've got it they can circulate it around their board but no i, I think it, it was only the second time we've acquired a, a company but yeah so far good experience and i think the nerve-wracking bit from talking to friends who've done it before is you're basically acquiring lots of people into your team at once. So again, you've got to really work out, is there a cultural fit? Because if there's not a cultural fit, then those people aren't going to, aren't going to work. Uh, so we've spent a lot of time on that. So we've, we've asked for your best uh, moment. It'd be unfair to let you get away with not having the worst moments. So what, what have some of the worst moments been or the hardest moments? Uh, again, it, it goes back to mishires where you get really excited that you've got this, uh, generally also a senior person joining, and you think, great, they're, they're going to really transform it. And then it's that reality when you sleepless night, when you think, I don't know, maybe after a month, three months, sometimes six months, you think this person's just not, not what I thought they were going to be. And I think that the hard thing that I found was, for, I mean, without naming roles, but I'd never hired a chief whatever or a chief something else. We'd never had one, so I didn't quite know what to expect. So I found it quite hard to, to work out, well, am I ha- did I have unrealistic expectations for what this role should do? But it's just a general feeling of this isn't working. This, this isn't good enough, basically. Uh, and, and then you've got to deal with it. And then you've got to deal with it. You've got to, the company went through a period of seeing quite a lot of C-levels leave because uh, we had to let them go because they weren't working out. And that, that, that causes a lot of kind of uncertainty lack of trust, lack of confidence. So we had to battle that for a good couple of years. Luckily, the last kind of 18 months have been more plain safe, but wow. definitely very tough times. Yeah. How, how do you keep staff morale up when, when there's like turnover at a high level? Yeah, it, it's super tough. I think we've always been honest with why it didn't work out. So no, no, again, not, not criticizing someone and saying they were crap, they were rubbish, they didn't do anything. Just saying, look, honestly, this, this person didn't fit into how we work. Not to say they're not great somewhere else, but they just didn't fit into how we work. And that's why we're having to let them go. I think the company went through a period of seeing, I don't know, two or three within a year leave. And then it's questioning, well, why did they get through in the first place? What advice would you give to your former self 10 years ago in um, in, in how to build a, a business? I think most mistakes were made, in the, the, not in the first five years, but in the kind of second, so in, in the five most recent years. And again, I'm repeating myself, but it is around hiring. Spend lots of time with the person you're hiring, do lots and lots of reference checking. We used to do things like presentations for senior roles. We don't bother anymore. Get them to talk through how they worked before and, and could keep drilling into that again and again and again and, and focus on that way of working, nothing else. Makes sense. Um, there's been uh, quite an active tech IPO market in recent times in the UK, yeah. but we've also seen a couple of companies get lured in by the SPACs in the US. So how do you see things playing out? Do you guys plan to IPO one day? And if you do, would you expect to do that here or in the US? Yeah, I think it's on the the future roadmap for sure. I think ultimately it's a great way to raise funds. And I think particularly these kind of consumer-facing businesses can do, well, some of them can do very well when the IPO. And ultimately, though, it's it's just another funding round. I don't think, I don't see it as that radically different to a private round. Like a private round, obviously bringing some primary capital, you get an opportunity sometimes for uh, investors to sell down a bit. It's ultimately not hugely different. Um, so we'd weigh it up against private rounds, but for sure, it'd be, it'd be, good. It'd be a fun thing to, to experience as well. 
For sure. And what's your vision for Carwell? How has that changed at all over the last few years? I think it, I think it's it just gets bigger the vision in terms of again, it's all around helping you with your car. Like it's most households, second biggest monthly outgoing after their the rent or their mortgage. So it's a big, big, big part of people's lives. There's a lot of distrust in it. There's a lot of confusion, and we just want to help the consumer and be loved by them. We, we do it. We do it well within you. We, we're doing it now with helping you sell your car. Uh, we've got aspirations to do it and used as well, which is a big market. And then we do it in Germany and Spain, but we want to do it in more countries as well. It's super interesting your journey, given going straight into being a founder from uni, pretty much. And I think to lots of people, that's how entrepreneurs do it, because the people we hear about, the Mark Zuckerbergs, that sort of thing, I suppose we think that must be the norm. But as investors, we can certainly tell you it's not the norm. So do you think if you had experience before starting Carwell, you would have avoided any of the mistakes you made? Or do you think there was a, a sort of naive optimism that's helped you along the way? No, I, I think... If I'd have worked at a scale up before, it'd have been far, far better. I think we'd have moved far, 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 far faster. And you, you see it with some of the really successful entrepreneurs. They've often worked in tech businesses before, again, often in a successful one, and then, and then applied lots of the same principles. So I think I struggled with, I'd never worked in a company before until Carlisle. Yeah, if, if we're doing it again, we'd do it. I don't know, 10 times faster. At least the first few years will be 10 times faster. Far easier to access capital. You've got more of a track record. You've made loads of mistakes already in your career. You've got a network already. Yeah, I think jumping straight into founding a business, yeah, for sure, I wouldn't put anyone off it, but I think seeing the world and seeing other sides of how things are done is also a very, very good first step. Yeah, as an investor on the other side, it is definitely more interesting when someone says, I'm X relevant company and i've worked at a big you know scale up tech company hector do you you guys feel the same episode one do you get lured in by that a bit (laughs) yeah definitely and i think we have to be careful because it turns into a bias and for founders who have worked at you know carwell delivery any of these sorts of companies investors are immediately going to prick up and so it's a massive help for raising money but as james will testify not having had that experience doesn't mean you won't build a successful business. And the real opportunity is, is, are these diamonds in the rough, right? It's people who are overlooked and that's where the real opportunity lies because other people aren't looking. So yeah, it's definitely true. And, and you know, it can be a massive help in starting these businesses, but we definitely have to be careful not to fall into the trap of only investing in these people. And I think it's the same with hiring again. It's easy to see it have a very strong bias as soon as you see a well-known tech startup on the CV. Doesn't mean it's necessarily, again, going to work. And there'll be some harder, harder to spot talent that hasn't necessarily been there, done it before. And James, you said that when you first went out, you spoke to lots of VCs, didn't quite break through, but then you met Simon and that triggered an angel round, which ultimately got the company going. So how important... Do you see the angel round being, and do you do any angel investing? And if you do, what do you look for when you're reviewing a startup? Yeah, definitely that angel is a huge breakthrough for us. And I think we were very lucky to have Simon and, and some of his mates and a couple of other entrepreneurs that we got in, because again, they helped us hugely get to the next step. And, and Simon's still on our board now and adds an amount of value. I, th- I think that angel community is super important for the tech ecosystem. I, I do a fair bit of angel investing. I focus on stuff I understand, and there's a lot of stuff I don't understand. So mainly consumer-facing stuff. 
and again lots obviously on what the proposition is and who the founder is but yeah very keen to get involved and help out where I can to these angel investments and I think the other thing is the angel investment community is huge now there's a lot of people out there doing it whereas six seven years ago there's a very kind of niche little community and and that's only a, a fantastic thing yeah it was definitely been driven by more unicorns being around so the the demographic of yeah. the angel has slightly shifted from old boys bringing in their mates to more people that have actually been on tech scale up journeys. And that's yeah. really positive to be able to add some of those experiences yeah. to your cap table as well. Does anyone in your family have an entrepreneurial background? What led you to going straight in at the deep end? I, I, no, they haven't. I mean, my family are all doctors, literally. I think, I think my dad said, yeah, do your own business for six months. It'll look good on your CV when you apply for jobs later. Uh, not in a discouraging way, just that that's how they saw the world. No, the, the only reason we started a business, we had no clue what else to do. Not a clue. So you guys, I think I'm right in saying you're in the UK, Germany and Spain. Would Carwell work in the US? Definitely. It, it's, it's something we're exploring at the moment. There's a couple of countries that are really attractive. US is potentially one of them. But ultimately, we don't think the, we don't think the consumer pain of buying a car has been eased at all. There. But for sure, it's on the short list. And how come you haven't targeted it? I think we we knew that Germany was very close to home, a fantastic market, very strong in, in autos, in the economy. We thought that was brilliant. And then Spain, we thought, again, close to home. Now we're getting confidence we can go a bit further afield. And, and, and the US is, is definitely big, unique in many ways. But yeah, we, we think it could work there for sure. And apart from having the, enough capital to take on a new market, what are your biggest considerations around entering a new market? Size makes a huge difference. Spain's a great market for us, but it's not that big. Uh, you, you look at, say, Florida, and it's 50% bigger than the UK. And that makes such a difference because ultimately you're making this, you've you, you got the same pain of building a network. You've got the same pain of localizing the product. You've got the same pain of getting consumers. You're just doing it to a much wider audience. Yeah. Um, so I don't think the work effort is harder. Yeah. And with precision targeting through digital channels, could you do just one state? So when we launched uh, Spain, we did Opal in Madrid. And then the next week we did Opal in Barcelona. And it's a city by city, brand by brand approach. So yeah, we're we're going to play a playbook to do this. And how does that work? So you have Opal signed up. And then how do you avoid the problem of consumers coming to CarWow in Spain and only seeing Opal and thinking, this is rubbish. I'm not- you, you basically have to put up with that. So for sure, your consumer proposition is not wide. It's a bit like if you were delivery, you might only do pizza. So you think, I'll go to it, but I don't want pizza on curry. You just have to put up with, for the first six months, you're not going to have a complete consumer proposition. But that for us is the best way of launching. The other way of launching would be to sign up loads of dealers, do massive marketing all at once. But the reality is you need to tweak stuff as you go. It's never perfect. And doing it on a smaller scale means you can move faster. Super interesting. Does it tend to be easy enough to get an Opal lined up? You Generally, you're not ringing up Opal in this example. You're ringing up Opal dealers. So you've got to cold call and build out a dealer network. So that that's the hardest bit because you... The, generally these dealers won't have heard of you they're not always the most switched on to online or the most open to it that's the hard grind of literally going around the houses and, and signing them up and what is the pitch what do you give them case studies give them figures what they can expect yeah exactly that and basically the story is look this, the consumers moved online you've got this big showroom so you, you get some local people who will just walk in but 
you, the consumer's making the decision online. And with Wizzle, presumably the proposition just gets even stronger because then now you're saying we're a supply source as well as a demand source. Yeah, that, that's it. We've got a, a strong consumer proposition and we've got a stronger supplier proposition. So you've got more reasons to work with us. How do you choose which brands to go with first? Like, how do you knock them off? Market share, generally. No, nothing too scientific. Yeah. And where do you get that data? You can find it. There's a way to find it always. Are there any interesting nuggets of data that you guys see that, that our listeners might be interested in or that we might be interested in that you get through running a business? We see a lot of stuff around how people buy cars. I think what's always quite surprising is people aren't very brand loyal. So they change. Like, no one sticks with a Mercedes or a BMW, so you got about a kind of 70% switch all the time. The other one is how quickly the electric car revolution is coming. 50% of all the cars we sell out in Germany are electric or plug-in hybrid. You've got about 25% in the UK, and it's great. It's great for us, it's great for the world, it's great for the car industry. And if you've ever bought or owned or driven an electric car, within the first minute, you realise, okay, this is the future. James, do you have any more questions? I've got one more, which is around the, the recent chip shortage, which yeah. affected new cars. Has that been a tailwind for you guys in pushing people more to the kind of secondary market? Yeah, it's pet pain in us first, mainly because you've got to wait a very long time for a new car. So you end up buying a used car. So big, big issue because very few new cars around. And as an example, I ordered a new Land Rover back in October. I thought it would be here in January. And I get an email every two months saying it's delayed. And I'm now expecting it in October. So 12 months delay. And, and, and for most consumers, they'll think, forget this, I'll buy a used car instead. So it's an issue, but yeah, yeah it's, it's a headwind. It'll pass. Is that one of the new defenders? Yes. Very cool. Very jealous. But anyway, I'm sure we could talk for hours, but we do have to draw a close to, to the show. James, thanks so much for coming on to it. But before we go, we do want to play the business lunch game. And I wonder if you've had time to think about three guests who you'd like to have around your dinner table. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Quick fire responses are, I think it's probably an obvious one. I'm sure you've heard it many times, but Elon Musk, because he's just mad, ambitious, genius, running multiple disruptive companies at once across multiple industries and, and it just operates on another scale to probably anyone else. I think another one, I'm not deliberately sticking with auto, but someone like Henry Ford, who made a massive empire free digital existing. Uh, and, and disrupted and was quite unique, but it'd be amazing to speak to someone about how did you run a business across countries at massive scale without Slack, email, instant communication. That would be really interesting to learn about. And then, and then I think a third one is we have a very big kind of editorial reach. We've got big video teams, lots of content production. We were talking about it earlier, Jeremy Clarkson. I think, I think he's a fantastic presenter. He's got his new farm show that we were talking about and he just brings entertainment education to life uh, and i think you'd be a good, a good person to have an opinion at a dinner party as well not afraid of an opinion yeah i think that's i think that's going to be a really interesting dinner i'm sure lots of good debate and opinion strong opinions for sure yeah. no james thank you so much for, for coming on to the show and if any of our listeners are looking for a new car they should definitely check out carwap and they should also check out carwap if they're selling a used car so yeah thanks so much james and yeah stay in touch fantastic cheers guys Thanks so much, James. Thanks, guys. Great episode there with James from Carwell. Lots of lessons to be learned about hiring and the importance of getting hires right, and if it does go wrong, correcting them quickly. Next week, we've got David Simmons, Chief Investment Officer at Wealthify on, so check us out then. Like and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform.